Father, as we begin this study on the subject of forgiveness, I don't know of any subject that gladdens your heart more than when your children pursue this issue, which is at the heart of your purposes in your coming to the earth and dying for us. We ask you, Lord, to guide and direct Mary and myself as we endeavor to communicate these things. Holy Spirit, come and minister to the heart as well as the mind of all who listen and be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name. We're very pleased that you have chosen to pursue this subject by obtaining these tapes. And I want to tell you that of all the series that Mary and I have done, I don't know of any, any teaching that we do that uh, is more blessed by the presence of the Lord when we're preparing it than this subject. And it's obvious. Without forgiveness, there's no hope. And uh, this is why we are always trying to help people understand the nature of the three barriers. The three barriers to healing, which any of you who have heard us teach anywhere knows uh, we repeat this everywhere we go. That there are three barriers that keep people from getting well, especially spiritually and emotionally. They are the failure to forgive others, the failure to believe that you are forgiven and the failure, therefore, to receive forgiveness on the heart level. And then the failure to come into self-acceptance. We have addressed the self-acceptance issue in a, another tape set uh, and in other lectures. But we want to spend our time in this series together focusing in on those two, those two other issues. The failure to forgive others, the failure to receive forgiveness. Now, uh, there are several basic reasons why people don't really believe they are forgiven. And I want to begin our discussion on the subject of forgiveness by dealing with that. How do I know that I'm forgiven? Upon what basis do I receive forgiveness? Uh, it is painfully tragic to Mary and me to see how many people we, we run across around the country and around the world who have been raised in church or have a thorough religious background. Maybe that's part of the problem. They have a thorough religious background but they have no security or confidence or ability to rest <clears throat> in the forgiving grace and mercy of God. They really do not believe that they are object, an object of his love or his care. The best they ever seem to achieve <clears throat> is a sense of being uh, possibly tolerated by God. Uh, the idea of God rejoicing over them, as it says in, in Zephaniah 3.17, He shall rejoice over me with singing. They can't even comprehend that. Now, there's several reasons why people have a difficult time comprehending that kind of relationship with God. The first one is that they may be suffering from true guilt. In other words, they are not able to receive forgiveness, not because God's not offering it, but because they have not truly repented. Now, that can be a very dangerous way of saying that for this reason. There are a lot of people out there who do nothing but repent, 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 repent. All they ever do is beat themselves up over their failures. Uh, they never appropriate the promises of God and stand in faith and receive those promises as being true. And they never stand up in, in their place in Christ and take their rightful place as his son or daughter. Uh, they just they wallow in guilt. And uh, that is false guilt. 
It is guilt not based on an actual event that the Holy Spirit is convicting them of. The Holy Spirit is always very specific. If there's something he's dealing with in the life of a person, he spells it out clearly. There's not this vague sense of undefined dirtiness. I don't know what it is I actually did, but I just feel so wrong. I'm, uh, you see, the Holy Spirit deals with us as sons and daughters, which means he has a true vision of who we really are. Our true self is his focus. So any behavior or, or attitude pattern in our lives that is in opposition to our true selves, he goes after uh, like uh, your body goes after infection. His purpose is to drive that infection out of your life by specifically pinpointing and convicting that issue and bringing us to a point of true repentance, which just means in the Greek, metanoia means to turn around, to go in another direction. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit in, in real uh, conviction of sin and repentance is to bring us to our true self. But so many people think of uh, conviction of sin not as God calling us to our true personhood, but as God generally holding his nose and looking down at us and saying, you are overall a total failure and a mess, and uh, it's all I can do to put up with you. So false guilt is one of the great curses that we have to deal with in our culture today, and it's directly related to Another issue that causes us to, to be able to, to have a difficult time receiving forgiveness, and that is having bad experiences with authority figures, especially a father or father figure. But uh, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. You know, something really important to keep in mind here uh, when you're trying to distinguish between if you're having a, a really uh, convicting sense of guilt coming from the Lord or whether it's something that is just this false guilt. False guilt is always connected to your personhood, to your very being. Uh, God never slams who you are. He is always going after your character. He is always uh, uh, convicting you with uh, true guilt, which has to do with things that you do, your behavior, your ways of thinking, your attitudes. He's, he's always specific, like Clay just said. But always remember, if, it, if it's just a general kind of, well, I don't like who I am, and God doesn't like who I am, and, and I just don't like me in general, and it's just slamming who you are as a person, that is, the root of that is false guilt. Now, this can be related also, as, as we just mentioned, to bad experiences with authority figures, especially a father or, or father substitute, who never affirmed, who never comforted, who never uh, spoke uh, in confidence about you as a person. And this is why we speak of these three barriers all connected. The failure to forgive others, the failure to receive forgiveness, and the failure to come into self-acceptance are therefore clearly seen as being related. But right now, I want to continue to focus on the failure to receive forgiveness because it's the foundation of everything. If I know I'm forgiven then I will naturally and supernaturally move right on into forgiving others. And having been forgiven and being able to relate properly to others, I will come into my rightful place in Christ and self-acceptance will be the natural outflow of this process. But if I don't believe that I'm forgiven, 
I can no more go on into fully forgiving others and coming into self-acceptance than a first grader who skipped all of the ABCs could go on into the second grade successfully. So we're dealing with, number one, either true guilt, which needs to be repented of and dealt with honestly before God so as to be able to have a clean slate and honest, naked interaction with the Lord. Or we're dealing with false guilt, which is rooted in a neurotic feeling of overall shame and un, uh, uh, unworthiness and lack of uh, uh, value in our own eyes or in the eyes of God. Or we're dealing with <clears throat> bad experiences from childhood where we were so wounded by authority figures that we project this up at God. Or we might be dealing with what is basically known in psychiatric and psychological circles as obsessive compulsive behavior. And this needs to be medicated and it needs some uh, medical help as well as good counseling help. But people who are obsessive compulsive uh, in, their, in their thinking sometimes are that way because of a need for uh, medical help in balancing the brain chemistry. But I have run across so many people who become obsessed with the idea that they have committed the unpardonable sin, for instance. We'll talk more about that a little later. Or they become obsessed with some failure of their past that they cannot get over, and they think about it all the time. And the more they think about it, the more they feel guilty about it. And the more they feel guilty, the more they look up Scripture uh, on judgment. And if they read a Scripture that has mercy in it, they won't see the mercy. They'll only see the judgment. And uh, a demonic element can enter into this and cause it to become a terrible torment. Usually these people, too, are very introspective. They're continually uh, making routines and thinking in uh, one, two, three, four, five. So they're continually trying to cleanse something about their life, uh, keep things in order, for instance, or uh, perfectionism in this one area, or continually uh, cleaning, continuously cleaning either their, their own bodies or keeping their surroundings in perfect uh, cleanliness. Though there can be a definite a chemical imbalance here that needs medical help, there is also, uh, in some cases, uh, the sin of pride at the root of this. They need to repent of trying to be worthy of uh, God's love and care on their own. In other words, they don't see the need for having a Savior shed his blood for them. They really believe that if they work hard enough and do things right, they can achieve a level of purity on their own that negates their need for uh, a savior. In other words, they're trying to earn their self-worth. They think that they have to to perform in some fashion, some way, go through some ritual of cleansing, some ritual of order in order to attain to having self-worth in the eyes of God. So there's true guilt, which needs to be understood as specific the Holy Spirit putting his finger on it, saying, this is what I'm dealing with in you, and this is what you need to take responsibility for and repent of. There is false guilt, which is neurotic. False guilt may be based in compulsive, obsessive thinking, or it may be based in having come from a terribly unaffirming and unloving background where male authority figures were uh, the source of constant self-examination with no comfort, no, no affection, no love. But then the last category that may be contributory to our failure to receive forgiveness is what I simply call bad theology. And of all the things we've mentioned up till this point, 
bad theology may be the, the most important one of all. In fact, I think it obviously is the most important of all. Because if you have an understanding of the heart of God, that automatically topples all other arguments against your being loved and cared for. In other words, in the words of the Apostle Paul, if God be for me, who can be against me? If God loves me, does it really matter if my father on the earth didn't? If God affirms me, does it really matter if no one else does? If God says that he cares enough for me, that he would die for me and lay his life down for me and, and, and uh, he would have done that for me even if I had been the only person in the universe that needed it, as Hebrews chapter 2 uh, says, then what else could possibly have authority enough to shake me or make me insecure? So bad theology is, I think, the, mo the most important issue that we need to look at here. And we will look at some of the other issues that we've touched on in introduction. But let's first of all look at what the Bible says about the character and nature of God. A.W. Tozer said, a right, <clears throat> excuse me, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse <clears throat> anywhere in the world, there must first be a corrupting of her simple basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? Then goes on from there. If we ever really see God as he is, that will automatically deal with much, if not all, of the other issues that we have already spoken of above. George MacDonald said, It is not possible that any creature should see God as he is and not desire him. Seeing God as he is, I guess, is the big struggle because of our sinful nature and our painful past experiences. We tend to either want a God who is a doting grandfather or one who is unswervingly holy and just toward our enemies. But we don't seem to want one who is unswervingly just toward us and merciful to our enemies. This dichotomy in our soul is the source of a great deal of emotional and spiritual suffering. I want mercy, but I want you to get what's coming to you if you hurt me. So here again you begin to see the, the difficulty we have in dealing with the subject of receiving forgiveness without also automatically alongside it dealing with the subject of failing to forgive others. It's all of one piece. Though we're having to address the subject as separate uh, headings, you cannot deal with one without dealing with the other. The character of God is a forgiving, loving, but also holy, unbendingly righteous and just God. And this is what creates the struggle in us. We know we need mercy, but we also have a tremendous sense of right and wrong. And we want justice to be done. Yet if justice is going to be done, it's going to have to be done not only to those we consider evil, but that same justice will have to be turned upon us also. Well, the real God is both holy, just, and love, loving and merciful. We don't seem to know how to approach God and, and uh, uh, deal with both of those subjects. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Let it be the real me who prays. Let it be the real God that I pray to. Implicit in that prayer is the fact that we don't want to really talk to the real God. 
We want a, a God made in our own image and likeness, one that comforts us when we're hurting and looks the other way when we sin. One who who's, comes to our rescue when someone sins against us and brings justice against them while overlooking our sin. And yet, that's not the real God. Such a God does not exist anywhere except in our neurotic imaginations. Lewis went on to say, quote, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested, because he's really indifferent, concerning for our wel- concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. Not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds. End quote. Have you ever loved someone Maybe a child, maybe a son or a daughter. If you are a parent, I don't really have to labor language to to get this across to you. If you have ever known the pain of looking in the face of a child who you know is guilty of making a choice that is not only injurious to himself, but to others. If you've ever known the pain of knowing that they're lying to you. If you've ever known the hope that they are going to come clean in the midst of the uh, revealed crime they've committed and, and be honest and confess and then have the heartache of re- realizing they're not going to confess. They're actually going to try to shift the blame to everybody in the universe, including you or God. They will do anything to avoid taking the consequences for their sin and uh, uh, owning up to it and putting it right. If you've ever loved a young person who you see making such selfish cruel and evil choices, then you've known just a little bit of the dichotomy or the struggle that goes on in the heart of a holy God who is in himself unable to countenance unrighteousness. It's not even in God's ability to put up with that which is unclean or unholy or unrighteous or unfair. It's not even within his capacity to uh, turn his head and play like evil is not evil. And yet, with equal ferocity, he loves us. If you've ever known what it's like to love a son or daughter who is sinning, and your heart screams out for that which is right to be done, and yet your heart also screams out for uh, the salvaging of your wayward child, then you are just tasting a little bit of the heart of God. George MacDonald went on to say concerning this, this is a little poetic and it may be difficult for you to follow. I'm going to read it in its in its entirety and then we'll go back and talk a little bit about what MacDonald is saying here. Quote, Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. Where loveliness is incomplete and love cannot love its fill of loving, it spends itself to make lovely in order that it may love more. It strives for perfection, even that itself might be perfected, not in itself, but in the object. 
Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind, must be destroyed. And our God is a consuming fire. What McDonald is saying here is that when, when love, speaking of God, when God loves someone, the nature of his love is such that he not only loves us as we are, but he loves us so much that he wants us not to just be what we are, but to be cleansed and delivered from anything that keeps us from being what he created us to be. Therefore, for love to really be love, it must not only care for us, but fiercely, ragingly, passionately fight against everything in our lives that is in opposition to what love considers lovable. Does that make sense? So when you say God loves someone, you're not saying God has warm, fuzzy feelings toward them, though God does have warm feelings towards us. We don't have the time in this study to talk about all the characteristics of God. We're going to have to do just one whole study. I hope we can do it soon. Just on the character of God, who he is, what he's like, what makes him the way he is, what causes him, for lack of a better term, to have the emotions that he has, what are his true feelings and desires towards you, why is he holy, what does that mean when we say God is holy, all these very large but very important aspects of study that we don't have time to address here. I can only touch on them, but I can tell you this. What McDonald is saying here is very true. God loves you. What that means is he wants everything good for you. That means anything that is in opposition to God's character in you, God will destroy. Now, if there are parts of your character that you're married to and you want them more than you want God, that creates a terrible tug of war between you and God. And the result of that tug of war is all kinds of mental illness, all kinds of instability and sexual and emotional struggle. And the tug of war is going to be won by the Lord because he who begun a good work in you will finish it. So I want to tell you that the first thing you've got to realize, if you are a person listening to, listening to us today who has a terrible fear that you are not right with God, a terrible fear that somehow you may have uh, offended the Almighty in such a way that he no longer wants you, that fear itself is not a bad thing. That fear can be the beginning of wisdom. God is not the author. God is not tormenting you. God is not the one saying, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just going to dangle you over hell for a while and then finally drop you into it. God is not Moloch. God is not the devil. God is not a tormentor. Lamentations chapter 3 says that God does not in any way delight in, in, in hurting people or hurting men. And the prophet Ezekiel says, God uh, uh, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, his desire is that even the most arrogant and repulsive person and evil person repent. Uh, but if you are feeling this struggle on the inside, that this desperation to know his forgiveness, I want to tell you, that for you to be in that much grief over what you might consider to be sin in your life or what the Holy Spirit may be pointing out as sin in your life, 
This is a good thing. I'll explain more a little later why I'm saying that. But for now, recognize that the holiness of God and the love of God are not in opposition. God is not in some kind of schizophrenic struggle between his holiness on one side and his love on the other. Sometimes in our need to try to explain God, we have to use human terms that are not quite accurate. God God did not wring his hands and scratch his head and wonder what he was going to do when man fell. That was already a settled issue, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God had already made provision within himself to provide a means for his holiness to be satisfied on one side and his love and mercy toward us to be satisfied on the other. It's really important to understand that his love flows out of his holiness. The most supreme part of who God is to our human understanding as he has revealed himself to us is that he is holy, holy, holy. That is his most supreme crowning character if we were to delineate on the character of God. Now, uh, granted, we're talking in human terms and talking with uh, language that falls fall far, far short of, of really talking about who God is. But his love pours out of that holiness. His justice pours out of that holiness. All that God is, because he is all good and there is no evil in him at all, flows from this perfect holiness, from this being completely set apart from anything profane, anything common, anything that is not of uh, the, the sanctified. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. Then it goes on to say in verse 10, uh, verse, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, overflowing in mercy, or abundant in mercy. He will not always correct or chasten, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to what our sins deserved, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over and is gone, the place thereof shall be known no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to such as keep his covenant to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. When Moses first had the revelation of God in uh, Exodus chapter 3, the Lord said to him, I am 
he was revealing his holiness. Holiness does not mean that God doesn't drink and smoke. Holiness doesn't mean that God uh, uh, has uh, no bad character flaws. Obviously, he doesn't have any character flaws. But our conception of holiness has degenerated into uh, don't drink, don't smoke, don't go to places that uh, are considered illicit. Well, there's a valid reason for not wanting to be involved in immoral behavior, but holiness, the holiness of God is something far, far greater than uh, the things that I've just been describing. God is absolutely, unapproachably holy. There is none other like him in all of the universe. Uh, uh, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You wound and you heal, you kill and you make alive, and there is none who can deliver out of your hand. That's the idea of holiness, that there is nothing like God in all of the universe. He is alone God. But then we begin to find out other things about God's attributes. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 33, we find God revealing other parts of himself to Moses, where he says, not only am I holy, Moses, but I am also abundant in mercy and full of loving kindness. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 8. And the Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed, I am the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, in this revelation of God, which became the, the statement uh, the, in, throughout Jewish history, of what God's character is like. What is God like? He is the Lord, the Lord God, full of graciousness and long-suffering and mercy and kindness, and yet at the same time, rigidly holy. And think with me here for a minute. Do you? Would you like a God who is <clears throat> so full of mercy and kindness that he allows evil to flourish? The, it is impossible to have both. Uh, it is impossible not to have both, in other words, what I'm saying. It is not possible for you to have a God who is loving and yet unrighteous or, or willing to let unrighteousness flourish. A God who is passive toward evil would not have a love worth having. To be loved by a God who does not hate evil is simply to be uh, uh, the object of a being who has no moral fiber or character. Therefore, if he has no hate for hate for evil how can his love for you be of any value if he does not hate what's wrong how could his love be of any value to you so the need to see god's holiness precedes the need to see god's love that's what mary was saying a while ago you've got to understand god's love comes out of his holiness and his holiness is the reason why his love is of such tremendous value Psalm 78, verse 38 says, The Lord, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. In fact, many a time did he turn his anger away and did not stir up all of the wrath they deserved. Psalm 145, 8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. And I wish you could read this in, in, 
in the, the spirit of the Hebrew language. Uh, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. His anger is tiny in comparison to his abundant mercy. That's the idea here. Uh, and yet his anger is great when it needs to be. So compare that to his mercy, which the Hebrew says is far greater than his anger. Micah 7, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity, that passes by the transgression of his people? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. Let that soak in. He delights in mercy. God does not just hold his nose and say, well, I'll put up with you, but you sure make me sick. He delights in mercy. Now, when you begin to look at the character of God in the Old Testament, by the way, that's all we're looking at at this present moment is uh, our pictures from the Old Testament. You cannot read the Old Testament thoroughly and and leave it with a picture of God as a thunderbolt-throwing, angry, hellfire and damnation uh, uh, divine version of maybe your father throwing a temper tantrum towards you. That's not what he's like. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not the son of man that he should, uh, a son of man that he should repent. God is utterly, absolutely holy. And if you could get an, a, an image of that, a picture of that, uh, and the way to do that, by the way, is by worshiping him. If you come before him, maybe you come before him in, in terrible fear. Maybe you feel that you are hopeless. You Maybe you're one of those compulsive thinkers who's introspected yourself right into a hole and you believe there's no hope for you and that God has cast you aside. Worship him anyway. I'll tell you this. If you will start recognizing that he is worthy of your worship, whether he saves you or damns you, you will begin to come out of your darkness. You will begin to rise above that darkness that has wrapped itself around your mind. Get your mind off yourself and lift up your eyes and look up at the one who created you and the one who created all these things. Go out and look at the stars. Look at the awesomeness of it. And as you're looking up at the stars, just put one hand up. Then put the other hand up and then lift up your voice. Before you know it, with your lifting up of your head and your hands and your voice, your heart will begin to be lifted up and you will begin to see your life lifted up and you will come up out of that pit of darkness that your introspection with the help of the devil has sucked you down into. Get your mind off yourself. All you're thinking about is yourself. God is the source of all joy. Psalm 16 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You hunger for love? Where did that hunger come from? It didn't come from you. You're not loving. You hunger for purity? Where did that come from? It didn't come from you. You're not pure. You hunger for righteousness and justice to be done? Does it bother you when you see in cor uh, corruption and evil winning? Does it grieve you when you see mistreatment of people? Where did that concern for what is right come from? I can tell you it didn't come from you. It came from some other source who truly does care for the widow and the orphan, who truly does care for the, the throwaway and the mistreated and the abused, who will rigidly, righteously judge every crooked judge and every mistreatment of persons by those in authority and every every underhanded shady deal and every rape and every murder and every transgression. 
God is the one who put in your heart a hunger for what is right. And if you are sorry for your sin and you feel that you are unforgiven because you have offended that holiness, then there's a blessedness in that. If you'll go beyond that and begin to believe the other things God has said, then you'll begin to come into the fullness of who you are in Christ. We'll talk more about that later. The Old Testament gives us pictures of people like David, an adulterer and a murderer. Yes, a man who committed probably the, the two the two crimes that are probably most pronounced in our thinking in our culture today. A murderer and an adulterer. It's like the Lord wanted to clearly paint for us a picture by recording David's deeds. I don't mean God ordained that David sinned. I mean that God, in his uh, desire to give us a clear picture of not only our sinfulness, but God's attitude toward our sinfulness, uh, records uh, unedited pictures of the failures of men in the Scriptures, like David, uh, adulterer and a murderer. Uh, or what about what about Jonah? Here's Jonah, called by the Holy Spirit to go and speak the word to Nineveh. Nineveh is a horrible place. It's a place of great evil, a place of terrible mistreatment of people. It is the 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 Stalinist Russia of its day. Uh, crushing innocent people under its iron feet. All of the pagans around uh, that area of the world hated the Ninevites. Jonah hated the Ninevites. I was reading a commentary today by a man talking about Jonah. He referred to Jonah as a coward. No, Jonah was not a coward. He didn't run from the call of God because he was afraid. He ran from the call of God because he was prejudiced against the Ninevites. Now notice this. We won't take the time to turn to it. But if you have your Bible or you're in a position where you can open your Bible and read the story for yourself, read the story of Jonah and see that Jonah did not want to go and preach to the Ninevites because he knew something about God's character that I guess a lot of Christians don't know. He said, I knew that if I went and preached to these people, and they repented that you would forgive them. I knew that's how you are. You want to give mercy to these Ninevites. I don't want to give them mercy. I want them to die. I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them to fry. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth. I want to be shed of them forever. They make me sick. But I know how you are. If they repent, you'll forgive them. I knew if I went and preached to them and they repented, even the slightest degree, show that even the slightest degree of sorrow for what they've done, you would forgive them. And I didn't want you to forgive them. And God speaks to Jonah and says, it's amazing to me, Jonah, that you have more compassion for uh, the gourd vine that, that you were hiding under uh, to hide from the, the blast of the, the heat of this desert sun. You're more sorry for the death of your gourd vine than you would be over the death of all these men, women, and children. Uh, not to mention the animals, if I was to send judgment on this place. So, all the way through the Old Testament, how desperately we need a Jewish perspective on God. Uh, it's a whole other subject that we don't have time to address here properly, but uh, that's why I keep telling you, you need to, you need to subscribe to Dwight Pryor's teaching and, and get in touch with Center for Judeo-Christian Studies in, in Dayton, Ohio, and, and learn some Jewish principles like what we're trying to address here. 
concerning the character of God. Uh, what about one of my favorite stories, Manasseh, in Second Chronicles chapter 33. Let me just read this to you real quick. Second Chronicles chapter 33. Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was, a, was about to die, and uh, the prophet Isaiah came to him and told him to set his house in order because the Lord was going to take him. But he was only 39 years old, and he was very upset at the idea of dying that young. He begged God for more time. Well, the Lord didn't want to give him more time, and I think, maybe I'm conjecturing too much here, but it very well may be that the Lord didn't want to give him more time because Manasseh was going to be born. Now, maybe that's drawing the curtain back too much, but there's a real mystery here. Manasseh is an incredibly evil man. And we don't know all that goes into what makes men what they are. Uh, uh, we do know a lot of psychological principles, and for heaven's sakes, Mary and I teach on that all the time, don't we? Uh, how root problems and childhood wounds can contribute to our wrong choices in life. And yet, we're going to look at the prodigal son here in a little while. He had a perfect father, and yet he still chose darkness. So I don't know if it's right to assume that God didn't want uh, Hezekiah to live in order to uh, bring forth Manasseh in the earth. I don't know. That's more than the Bible says and more than I can say. But it certainly does seem to imply that the Lord would have rather Hezekiah been brought on to his reward than for him to birth Manasseh. Why? Well, it says here in chapter 33, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord liken to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel? He built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He reared up the altars to Baal and made groves and worshipped the hosts of heaven and served them. But worst of all, he built altars in the house of the Lord where the Lord said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord and caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed the times and uses enchantments and witchcrafts and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards and wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke the Lord's anger. Later on, under the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaks these words. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 5, and again in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 35, the Lord says, You have, you have worshipped the Baals, and you have even done that which never even entered my mind. You burned your children before Moloch. A thing so detestable, God says, it never even entered God's mind that such a thing be done. Can you grasp the character of this Holy One that we're talking about? And yet, this Holy God who will judge and avenge all evil eventually before His judgment throne, it says of Him in verse 9 of, of Second Chronicles 33, <coughs> excuse me, So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse, get this, to do worse than the heathen that the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Can you grasp the character of this God we're talking about here? 
He is not a God sitting waiting for an opportunity to crush you, waiting for an opportunity to, to damn you. If there ever was a man who deserved, in my estimation, to be damned off the face of the earth right away, it's Manasseh. And yet it says here in verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought upon them, Manasseh and the people, the captains of the hosts of the, of the Assyrians, who took Manasseh among thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him away to Babylon. Well, that sounds like a good start, doesn't it? But look what happens. And when Manasseh was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he was entreated of God, and God heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Are you hearing this? Manasseh was forgiven. So you're going to have to start dealing with what it is that's motivating you to continue wrestling with feeling unforgiven. Are you dealing here with true guilt? Are you dealing with false guilt? Are you dealing with a compulsive tendency that may need some medical help and some psychiatric care? Are you dealing with uh, a bad theology or bad experiences from your own childhood that causes you to assume that God is no different than your angry father who used to curse you and mistreat you? Well, the fact is, regardless of what is behind your continued inability to receive forgiveness, the first thing you need to do is to look up and begin to worship. I have never met a worshiping person yet who had a struggle with whether they were forgiven or not. I have never, never met a person who knows how to worship, who knows how to seek the Lord, who knows how to sit in the presence of the Lord, and, and who, who uh, has paid the price of pulling himself away from social activities and even family time and gotten himself in the presence of the Lord that did not get met by God in all of his mercy and graciousness. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried it? So, well, no, I don't know what to do. I feel so bad. I feel so... Uh, here again, I don't mean to be making fun of your pain. I'm not making fun of it. I know what it's like. But there has to come a point when you stop whining about how bad you feel and you turn this tape player off and start worshiping the Lord. Say, well, I don't know how to worship God. Well, it's easy. Lift up a hand. Look up to God. If you're driving, keep one hand on the steering wheel. But begin to say, God, you are holy and just and righteous and good. And I am not going to let my feelings deny what your word says. I don't feel like you're good. I don't feel like you're righteous. I don't feel like you're loving. I don't feel anything in my body that it confirms any of this, but how stupid of me and how arrogant of me to assume that my little feelings could comprehend the God of the universe. I'm not going to look in my feelings anymore, whether I'm damned or saved. I'm going to worship you because you are holy and right and good. If you're in a position to look out your window at the stars or at the sun or at the glory of this creation, Romans chapter 1 says that the heaven, or, or the scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And Romans 1 says, all creation is the clear uh, confirmation of God's existence and his order and his love. Because not only has creation declared God's existence by the fact that, that things exist, 
not only does it declare that uh, God is orderly and just in the fact that he created an orderly universe, but he created a universe that supplies air and food and water and comfort and love and support. All of this declares God's character. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to know the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Greek and Hebrew and so forth. All you have to do is look around you. And then out of that appearance around you, begin to worship. If you will begin to worship him, his presence will begin to come to you and reveal to you what you need to know. He will begin to answer all your unanswered questions. If you will seek him, you will find him if you search for him with all your heart. It's, it's God's character to forgive. We've just been looking at the Old Testament. We haven't looked at the New Testament. So let's, you know, there's a lot we could look at in the New Testament. That's all the New Testament is about. But the one obvious scripture that we need to turn to is Luke chapter 15. Here in Luke 15, there are three stories. Now, most Bibles probably, your Bible probably refers to the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But I don't like to think of it in those terms. I, I like to simply say that the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. You know, uh, Jesus never referred to people as sinners. Did you know that? That was not a name he gave to people who were broken in, in sin and rebellion. He always referred to them as the lost. Why do, why do you think he referred to them as the lost? Because you only refer to things that are lost that are valuable. I never talk about my lost garbage. It's not lost. I threw it away. Didn't want it. It has no value. But we do talk about things as being lost if they're valuable to us. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and then finally, Jesus says in verse 11, And a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that belongs to me. And the father divided to him his living. Now, the average reading of this by a Gentile person who's not educated in Jewish thought doesn't have any comprehension of the great emotion behind verse 12. Let me expand on it a little bit. According to the law of Deuteronomy, uh, a father was not to give his sons their inheritance until he died because he had to have something to live on. And there was no guarantee that the sons would not misuse what was given and uh, leave the father with nothing to live on. So it was understood that the father would not give the inheritance until the inheritance uh, was passed on by the death of the father. So what you have here is a young man, for all practical purposes, saying to his father, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, give me what's mine as if you were dead. Let's don't talk about the prodigal son. Let's talk about the character of the father. Because it's quite obvious here that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh, is trying to paint a picture for us of what God, his father in heaven, is like. You want to know what God is like? He says, God is like a father who is so loving and merciful and patient that even if his son blasphemed against him and spit in his face by saying, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Give it to me. He gave it to him. He gave it to him and did not try to impose his will upon him in any way. 
Verse 13 says, not many days after that, the younger son gathered all his goods together and took his journey into a far country. Now, the, the term far country here to our Gentile ears means a country far away, far, far off. That's not what it means to the Jewish ear. A far country just means a country outside the covenant of God. Uh, Paul uses the same terminology in Ephesians when he says, and you who were afar off, he has been, he has brought near. Far off doesn't mean in miles, it means in relationship. When it says that this boy went to a far country, it simply means he went to a country where the covenant of God was not honored and where God was not worshipped. And there he wasted his substance in riotous living. And when he had spent everything he had, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent, uh, and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Now, here again, if you, if you hear this with Gentile ears, it does not have the impact that it would have had on the hearers in Jesus' audience. There is nothing more disgusting to a Jew than a pig. It is the most unclean of the unclean beasts. And so, in fact, under Jewish law, if you touched a pig, if you happened to brush against a pig, you had to be outside the, 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 court, the camp for a day. So the filthiness of it all is being portrayed by the pig. He actually ends up almost eating the food of the pigs. You know the story, but the facts are these. When he, verse 11, verse 17 says, when he came to himself and realized that there are hired servants in his father's house who at least had something to eat, he said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of the hired servants. But you know the story. The Bible says that the father, looking for him, always looking, always looking, ran to him, embraced him. He's covered in pig mess. He smells like pigs. He's lived like a pig. He's blasphemed his father. He went purposely outside the covenant. And his father embraced him. And the Bible says, kissed him repeatedly, the Greek says. Repeatedly kissing him. Brings uh, uh, the robe. The, 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 the word is actually the best robe. The King James Version says the best robe. It's the protos, the, the first robe. Or the robe of the firstborn. He says, bring him the symbols that put him back in his proper relation with me. The robe of the firstborn, the ring on his finger, which is the ring of family authority. Shoes on his feet, which uh, negates his symbol as a slave. Only slaves were barefooted. He said, put shoes on my son's feet and restore him to my home. We have heard these stories so much that we don't hear them anymore. The character of God, according to the Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is a holy one. The Holy One who is also unutterably merciful and forgiving and kind and demands, therefore, that we also be merciful, forgiving, and kind. When we know that we have been forgiven, then it is automatically expected of us to begin to let that same forgiveness flow through us to others. In our next session, we're going to talk about how to receive forgiveness. What we are to do to respond to God in receiving our forgiveness 
And then in our closing session, we will talk about how that forgiveness flowing into us from God is therefore to flow through us to those who have hurt us. So to kind of sum up this topic on this tape, what is God like? What is the character of God like? You could really say it in just one word. Just look at Jesus. What is God like? Look at Jesus. You know, it says in Colossians, in verse 1, excuse me, in chapter 1, verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope, Held out in the gospel. See the whole essence of who God is. And what he is like. Is revealed in the scriptures. Look over at uh, Colossians 2. Verse uh, 13. When you were dead in your sins. And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. If you want to know what God's like, you have to look at redemption's story. You have to look at the gospel. You have to look at the old, old story and really get a picture of what that blood shed on Calvary really means. So pray with us right now. Father, Maybe you don't know how to call God Father. Maybe you just need to say, God, God, I don't know if I can trust you or not. I'm so afraid of you. But I have no no other place to turn to. Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to help you right now. Holy Spirit, come. Help me right now break through this fear of coming to God. Lord Jesus, you became a man. You know what it is to be human. You know what it is to be afraid to feel pain. Help me, Lord, come to know my Father. In Jesus' name. And Father, we do ask for the grace to have a true confession of who you are. Give us a revelation of your character, a revelation of who you are through Christ, through your Spirit. Give us a true confession from our lips, from our uh, lives that depict that we know that you are holy. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.